0: Welcome to Jonathan on Money, the personal finance podcast that brings you the latest insights and strategies to help you achieve your financial goals. I'm your host, Jonathan I. Shankton. On this podcast, we'll cover everything from investing, financial planning, retirement, and behavioral finance. I'll share advice and practical tips to help you make the most of your money. So whether you're just starting out or looking to take your finances to the next level, Jonathan on Money is here to help. Let's dive into this week's show. Welcome to this week's episode of Shankman on Money. This is episode number 19, and I'm recording it from the middle of nowhere in Georgia because I'm on the annual Shankman Family Summer Road Trip. This year, we're traveling from New York through West Virginia, Kentucky, Tennessee, down through Central Florida, and finally Miami, where we'll grab a tasty meal, spend Shabbos, and fly home. One of the beauties of the post-COVID-19 working environment is it accelerated many of the trends that were taking place. In my case, the ability to utilize technology to work from anywhere, the fact that anyone on Wall Street still shows up to the office every day, or even more than three days a week, is is just ludicrous, in my opinion. The only reason to do that is to show some boomer manager that you are putting in the required amount of FaceTime. In other words, it's a waste of time. One of the lessons businesses should have learned from COVID is to harness technology to their advantage. For me, this means being able to work remotely from all over the country and the world and still be able to get in a day's work if I want, just on the hours that work better for me. I can also utilize conferencing software like Zoom, for example, to have an international audience when I give a webinar and podcast software like ACAST to record these podcasts to listeners worldwide without requiring much equipment other than a laptop and a recording device. For small business owners like myself, using this technology to your advantage means we are in the golden age of small business owners that offer advice and sell their intellectual capital, not physical goods. You can literally be sitting like me in a dingy motel and have the world at your fingertips. If folks are interested in having me discuss more about the golden age of being a small business owner, just shoot me an email and I'm happy to develop some talking points on this subject. Anyway, this was my slight tangent for this week, although I think starting a small business is definitely related to personal finance. In this week's episode, we'll be continuing the discussion from last week on affording a from lifestyle. This week, I'll discuss probably the most important aspects of this topic, which is increasing one's income and an appreciation of trade-offs. As always, I'll spend the last half of the episode answering listener questions. I'll also share an interesting quote from legendary economist, that I use frequently when clients with clients given how relevant it is. <clears throat> and with that, let's jump into this week's talking points. <clears throat> so my previous solutions in this series of how to best afford a from lifestyle focused on the expense side of one's personal income statement. Eliminating unnecessary products and services and adopting a more affordable way of life are all reasonable strategies. However, it's equally important to spend time on the revenue side of the income statement, determining how to generate more money to improve one's monthly cash flow. So let's discuss some strategies worth considering. The first is having a dual income household. In decades past, it was more common for only one spouse to work. Today, it's far more common to encounter families with both spouses working. A dual income has become a necessity in this expensive world in which we live. If you're under financial stress and only have one spouse working, then it may be time for the other spouse to consider entering the workforce. Many listeners will be quick to point out that it's not always possible for both spouses to work, given the rigors and time commitment of raising a family. I'd counter with a reminder that entering the workforce doesn't mean you need to work 40 hours or more a week. Even a part-time role that brings in another few thousand dollars a month can make all the difference. Some companies may even provide relatively generous retirement and insurance benefits to part-time employees that may also be helpful for your financial health. Next is to leverage your skills in another capacity. Sometimes folks simply do not cash in on their full earnings potential. You may like a particular organization, but they're unwilling or unable to pay you market rate. There's nothing wrong with exploring the market to get a higher paying role. Example of this may be working for a small company or a nonprofit. These organizations may be more strapped for cash and simply can't afford to pay top dollar. However, if you take your talents in computers, marketing, human resources, or any other in-demand skill set, and move to a larger for-profit company, you may be able to realize an instantaneous increase in your earnings. Third, and this brings me back to the topic I started with, which is explore roles outside your geographic location. While COVID-19 has been difficult for people all over the world, the silver lining that came out of this pandemic has been the willingness of companies to hire employees outside their geographic location. This has led to people in all fields working remotely more seamlessly. I've heard of New York-based businessmen relocating to Florida, California-employed physicians moving to Israel, and Chicago-based financial services firm actively looking to hire people from around the country. If you're in a location where the opportunities are limited, explore opportunities from other parts of the U.S. or even abroad. You may be surprised how many companies would be open to having the right candidate work remotely regardless of their location. Another consideration is to develop a side hustle within your field of expertise. A side hustle is when an individual starts a business outside of their regular employment to earn extra cash. I'm not a big fan of side jobs that are not relevant to your line of work. I think in many situations, it leads to lack of focus, and it's hard to do two jobs well. That being said, doing additional work that is within your line of business in order to generate extra income is sensible for some people. For example, it may make sense for a Rebbe at an elementary school to tutor at night or on the weekends for extra money. He's just leveraging his expertise to help students outside of normal business hours, Furthermore, utilizing Zoom or FaceTime for these sessions doesn't mean his side hustle uh, doesn't mean he, he needs to move from where he lives. He can teach Torah to students from around the world from the comfort of his home. The only requirement is access to the internet and a phone or computer. Finally, and this is more this is more relevant for folks at the end of their careers, it's rethinking how to generate income in retirement. Planning ahead is especially important for retirees since they will no longer have a steady paycheck from work. There are some creative ways for folks approaching retirement to generate a higher level of income. The silver bullet to solve many cash flow needs is for retirees to simply continue working in some capacity during retirement. This will allow their savings to continue to grow and shorten the period of time they need to rely solely on money from their nest egg. If working longer is not practical, then other items to consider include delaying Social Security until age seventy getting more exposure to higher income investments, realizing capital gains in addition to dividends and income payments to meet your cash flow needs, and exploring annuities as a form of guaranteed income. Every one of these approaches requires specialized knowledge and proper planning. It behooves retirees to have an in-depth discussion with their financial advisor to determine a plan that makes the most sense for them. Sometimes the best solution to a problem is to view it through a different lens. Evaluating how to maximize your income instead of just minimizing your expenses, is an often overlooked financial strategy. Hopefully, one of the suggestions I mentioned will relieve families' financial stress and help them achieve their financial goals. Now, between this week's episode and last week, I really endeavored to offer practical strategies to make affording a firm lifestyle more attainable and less stressful. The highlights included minimizing discretionary spending, relocating, and as I just mentioned, maximizing potential income. As a capstone to this overarching topic, let's pull it all together, all the concepts together with the discussion on what financial planning and life in general is all about, which is trade-offs. Trade-offs exist in all aspects of life. We face constraints and have finite amount of time or resources. So by choosing one thing, we necessarily are diminishing or eliminating something else. The trade-offs are generally not choices between right and wrong but decisions on how we'd like to live our lives. For example, <clears throat> I can have a steak for dinner, but then I'll need to forego my milkshake after, since I keep a kosher diet of not having milk and meat together. That is a trade-off between entree and dessert. I could spend more hours a day working, but that means spending less time with my family. Similarly, a businessman may only have an hour a day to learn Torah. That hour can be spent learning dafiomi, or going to a shir on the parsha. Both choices are good ones. It's just a matter of how this individual chooses to spend his time. Naturally, trade-offs come up with our personal finances as well. With a finite income stream, all all spending decisions are a trade-off between expenses, savings, and investments. An individual can decide to lease a luxury vehicle, but a portion of that monthly car payment would have been saved in a retirement account invested towards his financial future had he leased a less expensive car. When deciding where to live, there may be trade offs between a percentage of your income that goes towards housing costs and the number of options for from amenities like yeshiva, shules, and kosher restaurants, which are, are more plentiful in high cost of living communities. Choosing to stay at a lower paying job you love may require slashing discretionary spending more aggressively. Living a life where a from neighborhood, yeshiva education, and kosher food are paramount can be costly and will undoubtedly require financial trade offs to make it possible. However, every family has their own set of circumstances, lifestyle choices, and goals. Your priorities will dictate which of my previous suggestions are feasible and which are particularly unattractive. In order to achieve the life you want for your family, it's important to appreciate the impact of trade-offs and recognize where they come up within your personal finances. The consequences of trade-offs cuts both ways. For instance, one may decide to have a have money by living, save a lot of money by living frugally and never indulging in travel, eating out, or luxury items. However, the consequences of this decision is missing out on activities that may be fun and enjoyable. If you work hard for your money and live within your means, then choosing to live like a miser may not be an optimal decision for many. As with many things, the key is balance. I call the juggling of financial trade-offs living your rich life. The concept is that everybody's ideal life looks different. One family might value going on a summer vacation every year. They may place little importance on going out to eat. Another family may want to live in a smaller house in New York to be close to family rather than move to the Midwest where they could afford something much larger. Every family must clearly define what's important to them and consequently eliminate other items that are less important. I always tell my clients that before develop, uh, developing a financial plan, what, the, what should they take, what they, they need to do first to determine what their rich life is? I ask them, what are your goals and aspirations? What is important to you personally? What are things that are low priority? Presumably, among the listeners of this podcast, the answer may have some common themes around caring for loved ones and living a Torah lifestyle. However, beyond that, everyone's definition of a rich life is different. The key is aligning your values with your financial plan and eliminating items that are a waste of time, money, and energy. Doing so will not only make life more affordable, but will also allow you to live your own personal rich life. Okay, those are the talking points for this week. And as a reminder, you can be notified of all my recent articles, webinars, and all the other work I put out by subscribing to my free monthly newsletter at shankmanwealth.com forward slash newsletter. Now for this week's quote, which is from Paul Samuelson, which is, Investing should be more like watching paint dry or watching grass grow. If you want excitement, take $800 and go to Las Vegas. By way of background, Samuelson was an American economist and and was the first American to win the Nobel Memorial Prize in Economic Sciences. Samuelson was likely the most influential economist of the latter half of the 20th century, and President Bill Clinton commended Samuelson for his fundamental contributions to economic science for over 60 years. And yes, for those listeners curious, Samuelson was a fellow Yid. His family was originally from Poland, even though he grew up in Gary, Indiana, before he went to MIT at the age of 16. Samuelson's quote is one that I paraphrase often. It's so easy to want to get excited about investing, both riding the highs and with the, with the winners and experiencing the lows with the losers. The reality is investing cannot be exciting. It should be painfully boring a good determination if you are handling your portfolio correctly is the level of excitement that it generates for you if you can't stop thinking about it and it gets your adrenaline adrenaline flowing you are on the wrong track however to point to samuelson's quote if it is like watching paint dry or your grass grow you are likely on the right track always keep this truism in mind when discussing investments with friends colleagues or your local kiddish club. Boring is always the right approach when it comes to investing. Okay, now let's jump into this week's financial questions. If you do have a question, feel free to submit it to me at jonathanashankmanwealth.com, and it may be answered in a future episode. Okay, first question. Portfolio management question, I mostly subscribe to the theory of having a portfolio that mirrors the global market. Specifically, since the US is around 50% of the global market, I position my equity allocation so it's 50-50 between US and global market. I would still like to overrate the US. Is it wrong for me to do a 60-40 split between the US making up 60% of my equity allocation and 40% going international? Thanks. Your reasoning is sound, and there's nothing wrong with the split you suggested. Let's be frank over here. When you're asking questions like this, you probably already know what you're doing when it comes to portfolio management, since so this is really getting into the weeds. The big picture is the main thing to focus on when it comes to portfolio allocation, and it seems you know what you're doing, unless 50% of your crypt- of your portfolios in crypto or managed future funds or some other nonsense. But on the surface, it really seems that you are on the right track here. And that allocation you suggested is perfectly prudent. What, recommend, what are you recommending these days for our largest emergency fund? The high yield savings account, tax advantage mutual funds, which something else? For an emergency fund, I just leave my money in a checking account. An emergency fund is money you have immediate access to in order to pay unexpected bills. If you're comfortable needing to wait a day or two for funds to be available, then a money market fund is fine. I use money market funds a lot when funds need to be in cash, are not needed for immediate bills, but likely won't be used for a year or longer. As I say often, stressing over a few basis points of yield by shopping around at different firms, CD's or money market funds is a waste of time. If you find yields around 4.8% or more, and these numbers fluctuate day to day, and I haven't looked it up in the past few weeks, then you're fine. Just do what is most convenient. Remember, focus on the $300,000 questions, not the $300 questions. A few basis points in yield won't change your life. Next question, what is my FU money number, i.e. the amount of money where I can say FU to my boss and no longer need to work? So, it's the amount of money you need to live the rest of your life with no one bothering you. Here's a quick and dirty calculation. Your current salary, net of taxes, and divide that number by 4%. Again, super quick, super dirty, just to give you some expensive perspective. That is your FU number, since it assumes you can earn a rate of 4% on your money and not need to work again. Thought of another way, that calculation assumes you will have 25 years worth of assets to live on. I ah, you might say that you need to live longer than to- money to live longer than 25 years or have legacy goals. In that case, you can just invest half those fund investments that will outpace inflation. And when you do need to start liquidating those funds, it should have grown to be a multiple of what it is now and allow you to live the rest of your life. Obviously, there are a variety of factors that come into play here, including other streams of income, like social security and lifestyle choices. But this rule of thumb should help give you some quick perspective. Next question. Does money buy happiness? Ah, Now we're getting into some profound questions. I knew we would allow myself to put on my philosopher hat at some point. The answer is that yes, but only to a point. There's some study frequently quoted, and I don't remember the specifics of it, but it states something along the lines of that if a household makes around $70,000 a year, then there's not much more happiness brought by the additional income. This study obviously was not done in a city with a high cost of living or any from neighborhood. That being said, there comes a point in life where you're making enough money and having have enough wealth to do anything you want. And the additional income or assets you have just becomes a burden that actually makes you more miserable. If you don't think having a lot, a ton of money doesn't come with a lot of misery, then talk to someone who is loaded. Money can drive families apart and often does. People who have money oftentimes become self-conscious and only surround themselves with people who also have a lot of money, which is quite sad and quite limiting. Additionally, rich people get preyed on by endless stream of solicitors who want their money, including fundraisers, folks looking to raise money for hot investment deals, or to give to someone who's learning and may not want to work on their own. The list of problems created from having a lot of money is literally endless. As a so- as social critic and philosopher, the notorious B.I.G. once said, more money, mo' problems. That being said, making just enough money to pay your bills without sweating it and the ability to save for the future and to be in a position that allows you to handle unexpected emergency expenses without a problem is a very comfortable situation to be in. Too much more than that and your wealth falls into the category of the law of diminishing marginal returns. Next question. The tooth fairy in my house, i.e. me, gives $100 per tooth. Is that too steep? You got to factor in inflation to, so to, in order to determine if it makes sense. If you want to get serious about this, then ask your mom and dad what they gave you three or four decades ago. Apply a 3 to 4% inflation number unless you think this service warrants a higher year-over-year adjustment like higher education and determine what today's inflation adjusted rate is. If you can afford that number per tooth per child, then it makes sense. And by the way, based on your rates, I really wish you were my tooth fairy. Okay, that's it for financial questions this week. Feel free to email me with any questions you have, and I might answer them in a future episode. And with that, it's a wrap for this week's show. Any comments or questions, feel free to reach out directly to me via email. I love hearing from my listeners. And finally, the secret to financial success is no secret at all. It's to spend less than you make, invest the difference prudently, and ignore all the noise. See you next time on Shankman on Money. Thank you for joining me on today's episode. I hope you were able to take away a nugget or two to apply to your own life. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast so you can be alerted whenever new episodes drop. If you'd like to submit a question that may be answered in a future show, please email me at jonathan at parkbridgewealth.com. Be sure to check out all Jonathan on Money content, including all of my articles, webinars, and videos by following me at Jonathan on Money on Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Finally, if you like what you heard today, please rate the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This helps ensure that other personal finance enthusiasts can find the show as well. Thank you and catch you on the next episode of Jonathan on Money.